This is Music Touching Lives, a podcast from Five Senses Music. I'm conductor Tom Seligman, and in this series I talk to musicians and other artists who do more than just perform or create. They use their passion for what they do to engage others and enable them to get involved. These days, we take it for granted that virtually every professional orchestra creates projects that take it into the heart of the community, not just engaging with its regular audience, but reaching out to people of every age who might not otherwise have a connection to classical music making. But very little of that was happening until my guest today, Richard McNichol, showed the way, taking young people in particular inside the workings of music and getting them actively involved with its creative processes. I asked him how that journey began. Well, it was really in the 60s, the late 60s, I started. Um, Bear in mind that I started life after university as a school teacher. And then, quite by mistake, I became a flute player. And first of all, I I was a freelance player, and then I joined the London Philharmonic. Uh, in the course of this, we did what we used to call children's concerts, which meant that a thousand children were packed into a hall and some would-be conductor conducted a Shostakovich symphony at them. And the musicians always said at the end of the concerts, if any of those children ever come back into a music hall, they're mad. And I went home and complained to my wife and she said, well, look, you're a teacher try and do something about it. Why not? So I formed a trust and went around saying to the various orchestras in in England, what about trying a new way of doing interaction between professional musicians? The background, I suppose, was musicians were sitting in orchestras only playing. They all hated this sort of concert, and yet very many of them had small children of their own, and they really knew what perhaps should be done. My own experience as a teacher was that children actually don't want to learn facts about music, they want to make music. And it therefore occurred to me that if we could go into schools with a small group of musicians, and if we could then interact with the children musically, so we all made music together, then this could be a very good preparation for the concerts that we were in fact going to do in in the concert hall. There was a political dimension to this as well, and that is that um, at that time, in the the 70s, 80s, England was embarking for the first time on a national curriculum. And the outcome of that was that the curriculum said that by law, every child from the age of 5 to 14 should learn to understand music, to perform music, and to compose and that was the law, is written exactly like that. The problem being, of course, that most uh, primary schools, for example, had no music teacher. So Thatcher then embarked on reduction in services to, to local authorities. And one of the things was said, the local authorities said to the orchestras, the Halle, for example, in Manchester, the Scottish National Orchestra in Scotland, If you don't make these concerts you're doing relevant to the classroom, we will cut your subsidy. We'll take your money away. So it was then very easy for me to get in contact with the various managers of these orchestras and say, look, I've got a way. I can think of a way of 
going into schools and helping children to do these three things that by law they're required to do give me a chance to try. Initially, I was completely on my own, totally. I was the only person who put this forward. So the Arts Council took an interest and watched what I was doing. And what was more important was that musicians became engaged in it. Some of them did. Some of them said, we don't ever want to do this. We don't like going into classrooms. It's not for us. And that was fine. But many of the musicians said, look, we'd quite like to do this ourselves. So they started doing it as well. Basically, they learnt on the job. We did it together. And then I became superfluous. And in the fullness of time, the orchestras all appointed education managers. And the education managers then organised the projects and their musicians took part. I would add one thing. It was important to me and important to the musicians that there was some relevance between the concerts they would play in with the orchestra at the end and the work that was going on in the classroom. So I have always, and still do, I've always taken elements from the target piece, so to speak. If you're doing Petrushka, then I would work in the classroom with ostinati, with little bits of folk melody, with the fragmentation of structure that is part of Petrushka, so that when we come to the concert, and with the LSO I always conducted and presented the concerts, you could say to the children, do you remember when you did this in the classroom? This is what Stravinsky did. And the response was terrific. I mean, my favourite story, at the end of one of those concerts, a little boy came up to me as I left the stage, and he said, here, mister, how did that man know we'd wrote Petrushka? Well, you certainly couldn't have any better proof of a, of a sense of ownership in a project. Um, that was in a London Symphony Orchestra concert, as you said, and you were invited, I think, in 1993 to start what became the discovery program at the orchestra, which turned out to be a real trailblazer for projects of this kind. And your remit was really to put this outreach and education work at the heart of what the orchestra was doing and what it was all about. I just wonder how the musicians themselves responded to that. The initial stages there's some resistance within the orchestra. I mean, there, there certainly were players who thought that we shouldn't be doing this sort of thing. This is, this, we should be doing high art and we shouldn't be messing around with kids on xylophones. But gradually it, it became accepted. Very quickly the whole orchestra became sympathetic to it, but only a core of players were involved in the actual workshops. So the first workshop, maybe I would lead it completely. And then the, the instruction to the players was, if you have an idea, if you want to join in, join in and I will, I will join out. You know, the essence of team teaching, in fact. And that was the way people learnt. Some players immediately had a flair for doing it, had good contact with the children, weren't afraid. I mean, a lot of players were quite terrified going into a primary school, which I know to you and me probably seems very strange, but that's the fact of the matter. And a lot of adults are scared of kids, scared of kids in blocks, certainly. And so they learned to deal with them. What won the rest of the orchestra over was the fact that when we did the concerts uh, in, in the Barbican Centre with the children all in the hall, it was palpable that the children were enthusiastic, excited, and that when I spoke to them, because I led them all, when I spoke to them, they understood what I meant. So going back to Stravinsky, I'd say, 
tell me it was an astronaut it remind me of, but he, he did that thing called um oh ostit ostit and the children would all shout ostinato and I'd say, well, what's an ostinato? How's it? And a, and a child would say, sir, 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 it's... And I'd bring him out onto the stage, because I'd always have a xylophone or something there, and say, do me an ostinato. And the players could see that there's a direct relevance to the opening tableau of um, Petrushka and this knowledge of ostinato and what an ostinato was. And they could also see that the children were actually listening attentively. They were, they were required to hear things, to notice things. It wasn't simply a case of saying Beethoven was deaf, here's his fifth symphony, which is clearly nonsense for a group of children. You could, of course, say, every time you hear, ba -ba -ba -bum, put your hand up. And then, I've done it, children will do it. So every time, ba -ba -ba -bum comes, it's like a, it's like a, a gymnastics exercise. But they listen in a quite different way, of course, you'll understand, because they're looking for something in the music. They're not simply thinking about football or the evening or when will this end. And the players could see that and they could hear the cheering at the end of the concerts. Um, and for the players who didn't do education, that won them over. They, they saw there was sense in this and we all like music. I mean, that's why we're in it, because we love music. And if you see the children loving music as well, then there's no argument. And, and of course, as you say, the key to that is getting the children actively engaged, actively involved with the music creatively. Um, take us into the classroom. Take us into a workshop. How does it all begin? How do you get started? When I go into the classroom for the first time, I don't know the children. I don't say anything. I simply go in. And maybe I'll have, I've arranged to have a metallophone or a xylophone at the front of the class, as an example. And I'll simply start playing. Let's go back to Ostinati again. I, I start playing an Ostinato and I look around the class. Haven't said anything at all. And then I might say, can somebody come and help me? And if you are friendly, if you, if you say it properly, a, a number of children will want to do it. So I will keep playing Mastonato, call a child out, give them a beta, and we join in together. Whatever the child does is equal to me. I'm, everything is good. So I will say to the child, oh, well done, somebody else, and send the child back. Can somebody come and take over from me so that I can listen? Another child comes and does that. We've got the thing going then with Ostinato. I don't care whether the Ostinato works well or not. What I want is the children to be doing something and to feel successful at it. We all know as conductors, orchestral players, whatever, self-confidence is at the root of all achievement. So I always say, well done, super, good, thank you. If it's a disaster, I will say thank you, next person. But I will never say that's wrong, ever. Never have and never will. We've got that going and I say, I, okay, if we do this for 15 minutes, it's going to be really boring. Where do we go from here? And a child says, oh, you could. And whatever that child says, I will, I'll bring them out. They might want to use another instrument. They might, I don't mind what they do. And they will produce something. And we, we get a little team of children around them doing it. And then, normally speaking, I would break the class into groups of, say, five in a group and say, right, we've, we've done ostinato and 
Thomas has invented so-and-so. Can you go into your groups? Group one, will you invent an ostinato for me? Here's the, here's the instrument. Group two, will you do what Thomas has done? And when I've got, say, five groups, they work in corners of the classroom. So there's a lot of noise going on. So every so often I will stop them and listen to what they've done, and then we'd work on further. When they've got their pieces ready, which, which will take five minutes, very, they're very quick. This is primary school. They're very, very quick. When they've got their pieces ready, we play each piece. I say, right, we sit and listen. And the rules are that when somebody's playing, we sit absolutely silent and we listen. That's fair. And when you say something is fair to a group of children, they really understand. At all ages, they understand fairness. They, they listen, and then we find a way of putting the groups together to make a piece. So I say to them, we could play one after another. Group one and three could play together. I don't mind, I'm not here. You organize it. And the class will then organize a structure. And then I will come back in, I'll take part again and say, let's play your piece. What do you think? And sometimes I'll get one child out of a group because when they're busy playing, they, they, they don't really hear what the whole group's doing. They're busy doing their own thing. So a child to come out and judge what worked and what didn't. And then I might say, do you mind if I have an idea? Could group one, then group two, then group three, and then four together, whatever, we try that. What do you think? And they always think that their version was better. Always. <laughs> so I say, okay, fine, we do your version. At the end of this project, we always had a sharing before the orchestral concert or after the orchestral concert. And some of the players would, would stay and listen. When Boulez came to conduct, he stayed and listened. And he was absolutely intrigued by the, by the whole process. Um, I remember him talking to a group of children saying, uh, what did you do then? How did you do this? Why did... And there's little Boulez standing here and the children who are about the same height standing, <laughs> standing around. Very, very moving. And what's so lovely about that image is that you have their children who are, in a sense, absolutely taking it for granted that they are involved creatively with that music-making process, that they're making the music their own in that sense. And what you've described is such an accessible way of working, actually, and it's, it's immediately creative, but you're also giving children ways of, of listening more attentively listening to music with much, much more understanding, but perhaps without them even realising? There is critical faculty involved. The other, the other side of what interests me is when they are in these groups, when they have these groups ready and they put their piece together, we try to discover why one combination of groups works better than another. And that, that's the beginning, I think, of critical faculty. The, the other thing that always concerns me is balance. I, I say to them, what did you want to hear in that group? And they say, oh, we wanted to hear the triangle. Well, you can always, sorry, you can always hear the triangle. We wanted to hear the glockenspiel. And I said, could you hear it? No, because the, the drummer was bashing away there. Well, how do we rectify that? So that's, that's a critical judgment, isn't it? Yeah, and, and of course, then there's everything they learn by working together in a group. And that's taking it another step further, isn't it, in terms of the social aspect. Perhaps you'd tell us a little bit about the projects that you've been leading in Germany in, in this connection. The work I've done with Klavier Festival Ruhr in the last 10 years has focused on Duisburg-Marxloh, 
which has a very, very high proportion of non-German speaking children, children who are refugees, who are experiencing the German system for the first time. And my, my most recent interest is in making music with small groups of children who really speak German no better than I do, in fact, very much worse than I do in some cases. And through music, we learn all sorts of social things that we, we need to take turns, that we can play quietly, that we need to be able to listen. And all these, um, these social skills that one learns through music are for me sometimes even more important than the music, I have to say. You're listening to Music Touching Lives with me, Tom Seligman, and my guest today, pioneering music animator Richard McNichol. In 2002, Simon Rattle asked Richard to build on his wealth of experience in London and elsewhere to start an education department at the Berlin Philharmonic, a big step in the modernisation of the orchestra and Rattle's drive to make it more relevant to the whole city. The first major project was based on Stravinsky's Rite of Spring and involved hundreds of young people from all across Berlin of many different nationalities and backgrounds. And as you'll hear, it was Richard who suggested for the project the choreographer Royston Maldoom, who also features in this series of podcasts. Just take us back to the beginning of that idea. The background to that was that Simon and I had a meeting and Simon said, look, we'd like to do something really big in the community. And in the past, 15 years before, I'd worked with Royston Maldoom in Scotland two or three times. And he's an absolute genius for getting very, very difficult adolescent boys to dance <laughs> within about five minutes. Um, so I suggested that we did a Rite of Spring. And parallel to the dance thing that he did, I went into schools and did some, some quasi Rite of Springs with, with some Turkish kids from Kreuzberg and various others. And when, the, when we came to the performance, the first half of the programme to an absolutely packed hall, packed stadium, was these children playing their version of the Rite of Spring that they'd invented. And then the second half was the dance thing, which was a monumental success. And the orchestra was over the moon about it. But the first half, there was real trouble because there were players who said, look, this is not this mucking around on instruments. This is not what the Berlin Phil is about. We shouldn't be doing this. I'd argued that we should be doing that. We should show another side. We should be brave enough to show another side. And Simon said, yes, you should. But, but it, had, it had bad repercussions, I have to say. It, it entrenched the side of the orchestra who said we shouldn't be doing this sort of stuff. It wasn't at a level um, that the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra perfection demanded. And those who thought we should be doing that sort of stuff. So it wasn't, it wasn't straight sailing. It's so interesting, that sense that that's not what the Berlin Philharmonic should be doing, because I suppose we might argue that that's just a misunderstanding of what's going on, in fact, in that situation, where, where the key is not that these youngsters are producing music that is somehow equivalent to what the orchestra is doing when it's playing, but it's creating involved participants, listeners to what the orchestra is doing, hugely raising their level of engagement um, and therefore, in a sense, burnishing and actually intensifying the importance of what the orchestra is doing itself. 
I think in all professional artistic uh, organizations, you will find that there's a, that of course, as you know, there's a spectrum, a wide spectrum of views um, about what we're all doing. And at the one end of the spectrum, we're, we're creating perfection at all times. And at the other end of the spectrum, we're trying to make our art available to other people. I do understand that in a city that with the, with the mayor there, when nobody knew really what this sort of work involved, there was no tradition in, in Berlin of education work. I can fully accept that some people must have been quite shocked. You know, we, we paid to come to see the Rite of Spring danced and we're subjected to a load of children or youngsters bashing around on instruments. That's not what we paid for. I do understand that. Nonetheless, that, that feeling has certainly changed a lot in the years since. And I wonder, just looking over the whole span of your career in this field, what are some of the most striking developments and changes that you've witnessed? One thread, one, one big change I see, is that on the performing side, that many musicians have now been democratised and they've become part of our community, that they're not people that go onto a stage, are never spoken to, play perfect music, then go away again. That's not their perception anymore, or a lot of them anyway, and that's not the way the public would see them. The public would now see them as people who are approachable, I hope, approachable and have a skill, you know, a simply part of community, part of, part of life. And presumably you've seen huge changes too in your own area of creative workshop leading. Um, I mean, there's, there's such an incredibly talented wealth of animateurs out there these days. And actually that's become an essential part of many artists' professional lives, hasn't it? I remember saying to players, isn't it sad that people who really could explain about music and who really could inspire people always want to be conductors or soloists. They're not interested in the lower, the, the, what's perceived as the lower area of, of life. That's so funny because in a way I would say that as a conductor in this day and age, uh, it's actually the exact opposite. I mean, it's for me personally, it's the area that I relish the most. Yes, that's clear. And whether I'm communicating with an orchestra or a choir or engaging with a group of youngsters or talking to an audience, whatever it may be, I'm trying to find ways of involving their minds, involving their ears, involving their own creativity in this music, in this amazing thing that we do. Then you've answered one of your own questions because you are an illustration of this line that has happened since I began. The thought of Rudolf Kemper involving himself with a group of primary school children or even bothering to tell the choir why he wanted them to do this or that is quite unthinkable. Now, Simon Rattle, yourself, Simon Rattle, real interest in communicating across the barrier that used to be, as it were. So that has changed, the wish to communicate in a different way and, again, democratisation of music. It's very clear that that democratising power of music and music making and working on music in groups is very important to you and you've talked about it um, in relation to the work that you do with the Piano Festival in the Ruhr in Western Germany. It's very striking to me that at this stage in your career, when you could be 
you know, dreaming up lots of grand projects with the great orchestras of the world, that actually it's it's working on that very modest and intimate scale that is what you most enjoy, that is what is most meaningful to you. In a sense, I started at the high art side of things, you know, as, as an ex-player in a, a London orchestra and conducting the LSO concerts and all that sort of stuff. And now my, all these years later, as a much, much older man, my real interest and real joy is in working with these small children in small groups and helping them to come to terms with being German. Music as a sort of means of developing social skill. For me, that's the real joy of the work now. You've been listening to Music Touching Lives, a podcast from Five Senses Music with me, Tom Seligman, and my guest today, Richard McNichol. To find out more, please visit us at fivesensesmusic.org. And if you enjoyed the podcast, do subscribe to the series and share it with your friends and colleagues to help us reach as many listeners as possible. Thanks for listening and join us again soon.